Welcome to DIA Today, Democracy in America Today. I'm Matt Parks alongside Dave Corbin. Glad to have you with us as we explore the ideas behind today's headlines. How you doing, Dave? We're doing well. We haven't been in Texas, so we've had a lot of friends around the country uh, calling and emailing, texting, making sure we're okay. We have uh, yeah. great neighbors there who checked on our house and uh, made sure that the uh, water was on and the heat when it was available was on. So, but uh, yeah, quite a, quite a situation there. I'm, I'm kind of amazing, um, amazing turn, right? A once in a 30, 35 year thing. So uh, hoping everyone there uh, gets a nice thaw um, this weekend and, and things get better sooner than later. Uh, how are things in New York? Yeah, we're doing fine. We got uh, a few more inches of snow today, so we're building up the berm pretty well, but uh, nothing unmanageable and certainly nothing like what they're going through in Texas. We've got the the plows and all the equipment ready for this and haven't had any power interruption. So we're doing well. Yeah, uh, Rachel's family had a, a very tough week. They got power back, I guess, a couple of days ago, but they were off for a couple of days and um, so Rachel's dad is uh, very industrious, enterprising. So he, with enough land, could you know find some trees to cut down and and burn in the fireplace they use every decade or so. So they managed to keep the house warm, but nevertheless, obviously a struggle to get through that. And you and you have concerns for neighbors and others as well. He listens to the show, so that was um, a tactical compliment. You know, to, that's that's something that a father-in-law would love for a son-in-law to say. Well, okay, yes. yeah, it's okay to score a few points here. Okay. Right? Okay. <laughs> that's right. why you have your own show. That's right. <laughs> All right. Well, leading off today, we're going to talk about maybe the the most significant political event of the week, which was the the death of Rush Limbaugh, as reported by Fox News. Rush Limbaugh, the monumentally influential media icon who transformed talk radio and politics in his decades behind the microphone, helping shape the modern day Republican Party, died Wednesday morning at the age of 70 after a battle with lung cancer, his family announced. Well, probably like a lot of people this week uh, with his passing, it just seems crazy that he was only 70 because it seemed like he'd been around uh, our whole adult life. Uh, I, I remember, for example, growing up and uh, we went to this great place called Fun Spot when we were young and, and they had a section kind of just dedicated to uh, adult Limbaugh listeners who would listen to his show while the kids played uh, in the arcade. Uh, and and just his impact in, in general on uh, that conservative movement that, that wasn't subscribed to National Review. That, uh, that was kind of brought into what conservatism is, what are some challenges with progressivism uh, through just a vernacular that, that spoke to them. And I think that I, I can't, you know, I can't point out how many people I met along the way in my time in politics in New Hampshire, the live free or die state that had been influenced by Rush or, or listened to him. And um, whether you agreed with him or not, I think that, you know, one of the things that uh, I took from the coverage of his passing this week is just how important it is, um, whatever your political opinions are, to try to be civil in expressing them. You can have some fun here or there, but to not be silenced. And uh, for example, I read one piece by uh, Andrew Clavin, who uh, really took from, uh, from Rush the following, let us all speak uh, and, and fearlessly. And in a, in a similar note, uh, Ben Domenech uh, from The Federalist 
said, quote, for conservatives raised by Limbaugh, what now? The task falls to you. He'd a great storyteller of a different age, Mark Twain, quote, each of you for himself, by himself, and on his own responsibility must speak. And if you alone of all the nation shall decide one way, and that way be the right way according to your convictions of the right, you have done your duty by yourself and by your country. I think it's a very, very important thing, and we suggest this in our classes, that you learn how to speak and, and speak well, and you learn how to have the courage uh, to be able to speak, even if you're outnumbered. You're not always going to be right, but if you're out there working hard and trying through speech to shape opinion, you're actually doing something good within a democratic republic. And I think uh, these associations that we've talked of so many times as being important uh, in Tocqueville's time related back to newspapers, but you could take the up to the present day with blogs or talk radio, anything that has human beings speaking to one another in a way where an argument for justice is made, I think is a, is a good thing for the body politic. Yeah. And it's amazing to think about just how influential he was and for how long he managed to maintain that. Had his big rise in the late 80s, but then the, the Clinton years were certainly maybe his most significant, or at least first step toward the national consciousness. And, you know, the audience that he was able to bring in on a daily and weekly basis, you know, you look at the numbers that these nightly shows run, whether it's Fox News or MSNBC or CNN or the, the nightly news, and they're just not equal to the numbers that Limbaugh was pulling in on the radio. Uh, he was the number one radio show for three decades. And Mark Stein was writing a piece. Uh, Stein filled in for him a number of times over the years and was one of the regular uh, guest hosts whenever Limbaugh wasn't able to be on the show or, or was away or whatever. And, and he wrote an, an appreciation um, of, of Limbaugh at the time of his passing. And he noted that you know radio has only been around as a, as a national commercial thing for 100 years. And for almost a third of that, Rush Limbaugh was the number one show in radio. So for a third of the history of radio. And you, know, you think about the future of radio, I'm not sure how much more there is to it right? as people kind of transition to podcasts and other media. Yeah, I'll just end by saying this. I thought one of the most interesting aspects of his career is that he intentionally chose to be on the 12 to 3 Eastern Bloc. And the reason why was that he thought, well, no one wants to listen to me in the morning. They've got to listen to their local person in the morning, find out what the weather is, what the local news is, et cetera. But I'll come on in the afternoon and and be that national voice. So kind of still the preeminence of what's local and then the national follows. So I think that's kind of uh, Tocquevillian in um, his assessment of things. Speaking of which, why don't we turn to our required reading? Yeah, so we're now nearing the end. We have two more weeks of coverage of the end of volume one. And as I mentioned last week, near the end of volume one, he brings up this great danger of the tyranny of the majority. And then he goes back and forth as prosecutor and a defense attorney arguing for and against what democracy has going for it. So in chapter eight, which we won't cover today, he says that what tempers the tyranny of the majority in the United States is the fact that there is no administrative centralization, that we have the spirit of the lawyer, and it serves as a counterweight to democracy. And then we have the jury system. Uh, that is a political institution whereby uh, individuals learn uh, the importance of law by actually playing a part in adjudication. 
When he gets to chapter nine, which is what we're going to cover for today, he turns to the principal causes tending to maintain a democratic republic in the United States. So what's tempering the tyranny of the majority are those three institutions. What is helping to maintain a democratic republic in the United States involves some, some other things, some other important elements. And he's very systematic in reviewing the ground that he's covered. And he'll say, really, the, the, the logic of the book is what are the causes of a democratic republic? And there are three that he points out, three general causes of a democratic republic. The first is the particular and accidental situation in which providence has placed the Americans. The second are American laws. And the third are American habits and mores. So where we're placed, that's accidental, what our laws are, and then how those two things, in addition to whatever forces are out there, shape the habits of our hearts. So what is it so interesting about the accidental or providential causes? Well, you note in 1830s, it still would have been the case, but two centuries prior, American people land on a continent and they really have no great neighbors that brings the, that bring them into war. Uh, there are certain um, challenges uh, along the way, but you're not in the middle of continental Europe and you don't have uh, the great difficulty that other nations have kind of getting their start. Second point, we had no great capital. You know, Washington DC comes along uh, at the end of the 18th century, but really by and large, everything that happens in the United States tends to happen at a local level and not having that great capital like a Paris or a Rome or a London prevents our system and our people from becoming nationalized, uh, centralized, uh, or uh, made imperial uh, sooner than later. Moreover, the material well-being that is present in the rivers and the fields that helps to explain the migration to the West. Tocqueville says at one point here that the United States was born a half full country. There was always room to grow and to expand. So you have people who are always on the move and you thus see the influence, the power that material well-being exerts on both people and American politics. Now, even today, right, we see you know, some of these same influences uh, that kind of push us in a certain direction politically, but you'd have to ask the question, what happens when you become a full country? You're not just a half full country. Would they play the same part today as back in Tocqueville's day or two centuries prior? Yeah, I think that's you know something that historically Americans really were wrestling with in the post-Civil War period. You think about the rise of progressivism, it's not an accident that it happens at the point of the closing of the American frontier. And it's no longer the case that if you're in the East and you're down on your luck, you just go further West. Uh, there's always more land, always more farms available. That wasn't really the case by 1900 or so, or at least not to the way that it had been in previous parts of our history. And so it's at that point, speaking of centralization, that the progressive movement begins to argue, okay, therefore the government's gonna have to take a positive role in ensuring there's adequate economic opportunity for the next generations of Americans in a way they haven't had to in the past. 
Yeah. And, and I think then it makes sense when he turns to laws next, that that same kind of decentralization, um, that's not fragmentation, but it's a, a decentralization that lends itself to liberty is on display. So here he mentions uh, the federal form of American government. So this division between federal and state and local power. He mentions once again, the township institutions, these, these kind of laboratories where people learned how to become free by making choices on their own. And then thirdly, what he calls the constitution of judicial power. The fact that even though things are decentralized, they're, they're still held together by this, um, by this magnet of moral dependence uh, that could be found in places uh, in the church, but it's found predominantly across the country in this embrace of the constitution and its meaning as the law of the land. So by the time we get to this third influence that has helped to maintain the democratic republic in the United States, we've seen in the geography, right, in our particular placing, this emphasis on decentralization, yet order. We've seen it in the laws, an emphasis on decentralization, yet order. And then we'll see it once again in the influence that the mores have upon the democratic public, that, that we have the habits of the heart, we have the moral and intellectual inclination of a people that wants to be free, yet can also be orderly. That's going to be a, a critical development from the earlier reflections you gave us on the very opening chapters of de Tocqueville, because you know he, he's talking about the Puritans in the 1620s, 1630s, developing this society at the intersection of the spirit of religion and the spirit of freedom, in his mind, really laying down some markers that are that are still evident. 200 years later, even though that Puritan civilization is not really evident, right? There's, there's echoes of it perhaps in, in New England, but it's a different world. And yet that, that connection between those two spirits remains vital in the 1830s that de Tocqueville uh, is visiting. So here in honing in on mores, he quickly turns to the influence of religion on the maintenance of a democratic republic. And he says some interesting things at the beginning. Next to each religion is a political opinion that is joined to it by affinity. So it seems for Tocqueville that every major religion has a tendency towards some of these forms of government that we've talked about before, whether it's democracy, tyranny, aristocracy, monarchy, or what, what have you. The American religion is joined in its political opinions to a constitutional polity. So there's something about the way that American religion is practiced that lends itself nicely to the embrace of a constitutional system. He goes on to say that one can say that in the United States, there's no single religious doctrine that shows itself hostile to democratic and Republican institutions. So no single religious doctrine that would show itself hostile to a constitutional jurisprudence. Now, there's some other things that are going on here that, that help with regard to constitutional polity being a corollary of that early American Christianity. He says, all sects preach the same morality in the name of God. All sects in the United States are within the great Christian unity, and the morality of Christianity is everywhere the same. And then thirdly, in the United States, religion not only regulates mores, but it extends its empire over intelligence. 
So in each of these three areas, you, you see the allowance for people to live in different parts of the country or to be engaged in different sects within the Christian religion. And yet there's this unanimity, uh, there's this common sense of, of right or of justice or of morality that ties together a people uh, at the, the macro level and allows them to be tied to a constitution at the macro level. Yeah, you get Tocqueville, the sociologist of religion, right, who's looking at the way that religion informs and influences the regime. So you'd think that it'd be the Wild West and anything goes, or in Dostoevsky's terms, everything is permitted. But Tocqueville tells us, if you're on the Winthrop Mansfield edition, page 280, so therefore, at the same time that the law permits the American people to do everything, religion prevents them from conceiving everything and forbids them to dare everything. Religion, which among Americans never mixes directly in the government of society, should therefore be considered as the first of their political institutions, for if it does not give them the taste for freedom, it singularly facilitates their use of it. And then we often have these kind of quotes that are famous, that are memorable. This great line from Tocqueville that I'd have the listening audience write down, despotism can do without faith, but freedom cannot. Yeah, and that's a, a prevailing theme really throughout the work. The fact that if you're free politically, that you need some kind of moral restraint to make that freedom a good for, for you and for your neighbor. And obviously Christianity supplies that in the 1830s America that Tocqueville's visiting. So then this final thing that I want to bring forth from the text that I think is really interesting, because you, you could read what, what's being suggested by Tocqueville to, is he suggesting that theocracy is the, is the way to go in the United States or explains uh, why the, uh, the, what we have here is a hybrid theocratic, democratic, republican form? And he's not arguing that at all. What he's suggesting, as we've kind of gone through from the beginning, that there is a moral, philosophic, religious realm that captures the mind, that captures the heart, that captures the habits of the heart of a people. And it's important that within that realm, that there is a, a dependence upon God, upon scripture, upon a morality that can hold a people together. But within the political realm, there is independence allowed. There's a pre-discussion of different ideas of policy of, of what have you. So as long as, as, each thing stays nicely in its lane, then this kind of two-folded element of, of our humanity is kind of properly organized. Uh, and he'll, he'll go on to say, in, in comparing America and Europe, in America, religion is perhaps less powerful than it has been in certain times and among certain peoples, but its influence is more lasting. It is reduced to its own strength, which no one can take away from it. It acts in one sphere only, but it covers the whole of it and dominates it without effort. And then what does he say about Europe? In Europe, Christianity has permitted itself to be intimately united with the powers of the earth. Today, these powers are failing and it is almost buried under their debris. It is a living thing that someone wanted to attach to the dead. Cut the bonds that hold it back and it will rise again. And I, I thought of those two, um, I thought of that comparison between America and Europe. And I think to the present day, when there's this great tendency 
to make the Christian religion anthropocentric, to make it political, and the great dangers that come about from not leaving it at its realm, but having it invade another realm and these tensions over what it means. And I think this kind of zealous attitude on both sides of the political spectrum uh, that endangers the American Republic, that, 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 that will undercut what Tocqueville says religion can support in helping to maintain a democratic republic. And will undercut Christianity. I mean, that's, that's the point, right? In Europe, why is it that, that Christianity gets discredited in the late 18th century, early 19th century? It's because it's tied in intimately to the powers that be. It's, it's part of an establishment that's resisting human freedom that seems to be not living out the meekness of the gospel, but, but just the opposite. And so there's definitely a warning there right, for our own day and any day that, you know, de Tocqueville probably a half dozen times throughout the work makes this point that the reason that the Christian church is strong in America is just because it doesn't seek to seize political power, that it actually exercises more power through the, the moral suasion and, and the work ultimately of, of, of God in the lives of individual believers than it ever could. Did, see, did Christians somehow seize uh, political power in some formal way and simply try to enforce their orthodoxy on the population? So the last thing I want to get into in our discussion of how mores are central to maintaining a democratic republic. So he goes into the, the laws and mores, the particular circumstance. What type of enlightenment has occurred that has affected or influenced the habits of the American heart? And here he says the type of enlightenment that leads to people uh, living out practical existences where their practical experience allows them to develop common sense, where you can just kind of see something that doesn't work. Well, that's not right. That's, you know, common sense tells you X, Y, and Z. And one of those things, right, that, that you kind of love in, the, in certain places of the country, or at least we're proud, you think they were proud of it in New Hampshire, for example, when we lived there, is that you just say, oh, people in New Hampshire have so much common sense. And we actually looked at other states around us that didn't, and maybe, you know. <laughs> Possibly <laughs> Massachusetts. Possibly. I didn't want to go there. Um, <laughs> I'm married someone from Massachusetts, but, and she listens to A lot of good show. people there. To a lot of good people. Not to say there's anything wrong with Massachusetts. Right. In-laws there, going back to the in-law thing. But, um, you know, I, I even think back to earlier in the show, just the mention of Rush Limbaugh. Rush Limbaugh's not going through Kantian uh, treatises on political philosophy or, you know, what the Enlightenment means. He's, he's trying to take principles of what works and what doesn't work and put them into a, a common vernacular. Now, you may don't, not like what he's suggesting, or think that we ought to kind of leave that older common sense behind, but it's that common sense that I think it's really, uh, it, 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 it is encouraging for Tocqueville in, in believing that the American Democratic Republic could be maintained. And so he'll say a couple of interesting lines on that front. Whoever wants to judge what is the state of enlightenment among the Anglo-Americans, therefore is exposed to seeing the same object under two different aspects. If he pays attention only to the learned, Right. Those you know, PhDs, he'll be astonished by their small number. Unfortunately, that's not the case anymore. <laughs> Sorry. And if he counts the ignorant, the American people will seem to him the most enlightened people on earth. So not many PhDs, but a lot of folks right, that have a bachelor's degree in common sense. That's, that's essential 
for Tocqueville for American success that led him, leads him to say later on, I live much with the people of the United States and I cannot say how much I admire their experience and their good sense. So, but all of these things together point to what? And point to an ability to, to, to the degree that we can and we're fallen human beings uh, to try to see things as they are uh, and to make good judgments thereafter. Now, prejudice gets in the way. We're going to talk about the three races a couple shows from now. Uh, there's the ugliness of, of just the human spirit that gets in the way as well. But Tocqueville points out a picture of us that a people can live with democratic Republican institutions if they have their eyes open and they make a fair assessment of things. And I think what he's really getting at is that Americans aren't ideological in the you know, 19th, 20th, 21st century sense of the term, where they just have these blinders on a certain vision of the world, regardless of the data, right? regardless of the evidence. This is the world. I know this is the world. And if it's not the world, I'm going to make it this world. And, and a determination to do that regardless of the obstacles. I think that's you know, one of the challenges that we see in our politics is whenever we see the government seized by those who are fired by a certain ideology and, and are kind of willing to, to push uh, past the barriers of common sense, past the, the checks that nature often throws up in our way and just plow ahead, right? We sometimes come face to face with realities that are unpleasant and that, that challenge us and kind of force us, hopefully, back into a pathway more consonant with, with common sense. So we always have an adjacent reading and I had kind of put the syllabus together prior to our starting the season. And for this discussion of mores and religion, it just felt a Cicero. We had covered uh, the Greeks and now our first Roman uh, Cicero. And then I was wondering, okay, well, is this going to be a good match for Tocqueville? And, and on many fronts, and we're going to read from his On the Laws, uh, you do see a similarity between what Cicero is arguing with regard to right reason applied to the world around us. But then I read a little bit further into the text, and I, I have to mention that I have to bring this up in conjunction of uh, with uh, Cicero and Tocqueville. Full disclosure here. Full disclosure here, but page 539 in a discussion of the influence that democracy exerts on our mores, Tocqueville writes the following. At the time of their greatest enlightenment, the Romans cut the throats of the enemy generals after having dragged them in triumph behind a chariot and delivered prisoners over to beasts for the amusement of the people. Cicero, who utters such great groans at the idea of a citizen crucified, finds nothing to reproach in these atrocious abuses of victory. It is evident that in his eyes, a foreigner is not of the same human species as a Roman. On the contrary, as peoples become more like one another, they show themselves reciprocally more compassionate regarding their miseries, and the law of nations becomes milder. So Cicero is someone very interested in the law of nations and the role of law in human understanding, uh, even he. Uh, was held back uh, by uh, his inability to see uh, all human beings as partaking in, in, in the same uh, species, uh, or for us uh, who are Christian, being made uh, in the image of God, image bearers uh, of God. So what, what does he, Cicero have to tell us that I think speaks into what Tocqueville is relaying here and the importance of religion and morality? Well, I think he gives us a picture in his discussion on the laws that the world is intelligible. Uh, that, that we can make some sense of it, and our sense guides us in the direction of what justice is. 
So he'll say in book one on the laws, with respect to the true principle of justice, many learned men have maintained that it springs from law. I hardly know of their opinion be not correct, at least according to their own definition. Law, say they, is the highest reason implanted in nature, which prescribes those things which ought to be done and forbids the contrary. Later on, he compares the Latin understanding of law with the Greek understanding of law. He says that the Greek understanding of law is tied to a word that means distribute and implies that something ought to be distributed rightly in the very nature of thing. So he says, to, every, to give every man his due. Uh, Socrates would say something similar, one man, one art. So whatever you deserve is what you should get. But he says, for my part, I imagine that the moral essence of law is better expressed by its Latin name, lex, which conveys the idea of selection or discrimination. So he sums this up in the following way. According to the Greeks, therefore, the name of law implies an equitable distribution of goods based upon desert. According to the Romans, an equitable discrimination between good and evil. So both the Greeks and the Romans, in turning to the word law, have, I think, a very sensible definition, whether it's what one deserves or one's ability to, to discriminate rightly between good and evil. And then Cicero, as he always, or not always, but often does, he combines that which is best in the Greek definition and the Roman definition by saying the following, the true definition of law should, however, include both of these characteristics. And this being granted as an almost self-evident proposition, the origin of justice is to be sought in the divine law of the eternal and immutable morality, but one that is kind of present in distribution and one that is present in our ability to see the good from the evil. So Cicero almost gets to Christ, but he doesn't. Yeah. Now, the law of virtue is the same in God and man. Well, not, not without Christ. That, that this virtue is nothing else than a nature perfect in itself and developed in all its excellence. So he'll go on to say there exists, therefore, a similitude uh, between God and man, but we don't realize, right, that that, that, that similitude only occurs right, to the degree that we have Christ in us, that in and of itself is, is what perfect justice is. Um, that's what perfect discrimination is. And we never merit that on our own. But it's, it's, it's interesting, right, that this, the intellectual framework that, that Cicero um, employs here to understand why we, we don't have excuses is, is approximating where things will go uh, with a scriptural understanding. Yeah, just to complete the point on the connection between the Tocqueville and Cicero, what is it that allows humanity to appreciate the actual equality of human beings made in the image of God? The Tocqueville says it's the incarnation of Christ, that it's, it's not until the incarnation of Christ that the idea of equality actually emerges in the world that breaks down that distinction between the Roman or the Greek and the barbarian that's obviously embedded in the observation he makes about Cicero. Yeah, not only equality, but as we were mentioning last week as well, equity, the whole picture. Yeah. All right. Well, with that in mind, let's let's turn our attention to the headlines. And of course, there's a lot we could talk about based on that presentation of the Tocqueville and, and Cicero. But uh, two things that, that struck me and jumped out at me there, uh, the advantages 
that the Americans had as they came to America and were able to appreciate uh, living in a, a vast and benevolent continent. And then obviously, as we've been talking about most probably the role of religion in restraining the power and the impulses of the majority. And you know, I think about the, these two things and how they influence national character. They combine in some ways to make Americans an orderly, prosperous people uh, with the kind of virtues that uh, the American founders uh, spoke of highly. John Adams, a uh, little essay on uh, government. He wrote in uh, April of 1776, as, as Massachusetts was thinking about independence and he's sort of laying out a vision for a republic for Massachusetts and then an American republic, he describes the kind of person he expects it to produce. And I think this, these attributes are, are worth thinking about in conjunction with the Tocqueville and then, and then trying to think about where we find them or, we, or do we find them uh, among us today. So he says, a constitution founded on these principles, uh, that is Republican principles, introduces knowledge among the people and inspires them with a conscious dignity, becoming free men. A general emulation takes place, which causes, now note these, these qualities, good humor, sociability, good manners, and good morals to be general. This is the kind of person that's produced by Republican institutions. That elevation of sentiment inspired by such a government makes the common people brave and enterprising. That ambition which is inspired by it makes them sober, industrious, and frugal. And, and you find industry and frugality all over the writings of the American founding as, as two virtues. They want to they tack them on to the cardinal virtues of the Greeks. You know, they talk about the cardinal virtues, but then they, they always throw in industry and frugality. You will find among them some elegance, perhaps, but, little, but more solidity. A little pleasure, but a great deal of business. Some politeness, but more civility. All, all those pairings, it's an aristocratic quality versus a democratic or Republican quality. If you compare such a country with the regions of domination, whether monarchical or aristocratical, you will fancy yourself in Arcadia or Elysium. So this, this is the kind of person that Adams is hoping, this combination of, of very prosperous circumstances and, and solid religion will produce. What, what do you think about that in, in light of where we are today, Dave? Well, I'd say this, you, you know that person when you meet them, you may use similar words to the words that John Adams uses there, but just that general sense of, of decency, just a decent person that has good humor, sociability, good manners. You asked earlier about Texas. I didn't ask my neighbor to go over and check my house. They checked it for me. I didn't ask them to go over every day, but they did it anyway and didn't ask me for anything, not counting it against me. It's just what neighbors do for one another. So, uh, you know, one of the excellent things that we love about Texas, not to say that you can't find this everywhere, is just that sense, right, of, of decency. And I think that it's probably out there more than we know. It's just not publicized. Uh, it's just not made common uh, because other things that are more sensational, you know, look at your nightly news, look at your, most of your newspapers, really none of that, none of those virtues in action uh, are highly uh, celebrated and, and suggested to be common. Article that, speaking of Texas, that, that talking about 
the challenges that, that Texas has faced in this last week uh, over at Axios entitled America's Can't Do Spirit. And the, the basic thrust of the article, it goes in a variety of directions, but the basic thrust of the article is, is that uh, the way that people are responding to this. Now, of course, <laughs> there's the good neighbor that you just described, right? That's not the headline grabber. The, the, the headline grabber is, is this battle royal back and forth over who's responsible. And is this, what does this say about fossil fuels versus renewables? And how does this fit into the Green New Deal? And what, you know, how do I dunk on my opponent here? Because remember last summer when California was struggling, all the Texans were laughing at California, all those great progressive policies, what a disaster, proven the case, better to be in Texas. And now here we go, Texas is having its turn. And if you're California, you're, you're dunking on, on Texas and making your point about how those conservative Texans don't know what they're doing. I, I knew those red states were going to get their comeuppance. And, and then when the next thing happens in a blue state, right, zing, off we go and, and blast away again. Um, now, look, it's not that there aren't policy implications of these things, right? We, there, are, there are lessons to be learned and we ought to talk through those. But, but, but the point that actually this article was making was that there's this real knee-jerk tendency, at least in our, in our media and our social media, to just frame all these things in the most partisan, ideological kind of way, right? And, and, and to really miss the story until you can't miss it. Like it's, it's so much in your face that you kind of have to, oh yeah, also there's people that are suffering. But you know, meanwhile, let me score some more points on my political opponent. Let's let's talk a lot about Ted Cruz spending 12 hours in Cancun because that's super super important. So, you know, I think about this in light of those qualities that you were just talking about, right? What's where's the good humor? Well, you know, we kind of like partisan cruelty a little bit more than that. Right? That's certainly the social media world. Uh, sociability, you know, just kind of treating people as people right? Without knowing exactly who they voted for. Uh, not, we're not really doing that so much anymore. Uh, good manners, we prefer self-righteousness. And, and when it comes to our moral positions, it's not really about being moral as much as it is having the right posture, right? Being on the right side, right? The right side of history, the right side of, 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 of right opinion. And if you have the right opinions, regardless of what you do, you're probably going to be okay. And if you have the wrong opinions, regardless of what you do, you're probably not going to be okay. Yeah, it's interesting. I, as you were talking, I was thinking about this uh, great essay by Rod Dreher a couple of weeks back titled The Snowplow Test. <laughs> I don't know if you read it, but yeah, someone had uh, plowed the driveway uh, of their neighbor. Uh, the neighbor uh, happened to you know, this was their second home, and they, they knew that the person who had done the plowing was conservative, and, and they weren't. And they were just befuddled by how to respond to this. I, I, I can't just take what my neighbor did as something neighborly, like <laughs> loving my neighbor. Uh, there has to be some political element to what they're doing. And hence, um, I, just, I just can't accept it. So this, this dueling political religion that prevents you from even accepting the love of your neighbor when expressed to you, is crazy. Is it possible that the real people that we hate aren't quite so hateable. And, and it kind of shows you, right, that the, the reality of things, it takes more work, right? And you might want to always get that 
and perfect accurate accounting of reality, but it's much more complex, right? There's a story behind the story. You got to dig a little deeper, right? There's, there's some gray there. You got to figure it out. And, and that often is not the makings of journalism in the year 2021. Not clickbait. <laughs> yeah. So let's, let's, let's shift gears to a, a different story. Uh, there was an interesting column in today's Wall Street Journal by Marty Macquery, who's a professor at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine and the Bloomberg School of Public Health. And uh, the title, a very encouraging title, I sure hope he's right, of the piece, We'll Have Herd Immunity by April. Uh, I'm just going to read a little bit from the beginning and the end of the piece and, and kind of try to fold that into this discussion we're having of, of themes coming out of the de Tocqueville reading. So he says, amid the dire COVID warnings, one crucial fact has been largely ignored. Cases are down 77% over the past six weeks. If a medication slashed cases by 77%, we'd call it a miracle pill. Why is the number of cases plummeting much faster than experts predicted? In large part, because natural immunity from prior infection is far more common than can be measured by testing. And he goes on to talk about some of the numbers and analysis behind this and, and develops his argument a little bit from there. But he comes to the conclusion that if you, if you look at the way the vaccination is going and the number of people that have presumably already had COVID and the way that that is allowing them to resist any kind of future reinfection that, that we're reaching a point where um, it's, its profile will be much, much less than it has been. When he, when he finds this analysis and he does the numbers and he you know, comes to these conclusions and he talks among his colleagues, what he finds is that there's kind of a reticence to accept these arguments, even, even from people that might find them factually sound. So this is the last paragraph of the piece. He says, some medical experts privately agreed with my prediction that there may be very little COVID-19 by April, but suggested that I not talk publicly about herd immunity because people might become complacent and fail to take precautions or might decline the vaccine. But scientists shouldn't try to manipulate the public by hiding the truth. As we encourage everyone to get a vaccine, we also need to reopen schools and society to limit the damage of closures and prolonged isolation. Contingency planning for an open economy by April can deliver hope to those in despair and to those who have made large personal sacrifices. You know, I think about the, like the second part of that list of qualities in that John Adams list, bravery, enterprise, sobriety, industry, frugality. Right? And, and, and the way those kind of qualities are being ignored or, or maybe supplanted by the way that we've approached COVID. Right? And, and, and so, you know, enterprise is not really rewarded. It's, in fact, it's, it's, it's something that's causing trouble. Right? We need to shut down the, the enterprising, the small businessman who wants to try to find a way to keep going. These qualities are, are no longer really attractive. We want to treat people as, as, as those sort of as problems that have to be manipulated, right? So we get the right behavior. So in our risk averse society, we don't have any more trouble. And then we can go back to, to what, right? It's not clear that the back to is anything like what it was before. And the, there's, there's, there's worrying signs that perhaps that the post COVID world, at least imagined by the experts, is not actually the pre-COVID world in meaningful ways. And that some of these qualities that were cultivated by earlier habits of Americans and their experiences 
might might not be ones we're trying to cultivate in in this post-COVID America. Well, the great irony, right, that Thomas Hobbes, who was no uh, fan of Christianity and, and wanted the world to embrace science, defined science as the knowledge of consequences. You know, and now uh, some you know 400, 500 years later, science is now politicized and has become almost a, a gospel uh, unto a certain way of thinking of things so that consequences don't matter anymore. Uh, science applied to a situation, counting things rightly, that, that doesn't matter because that doesn't fit into uh, a science that's made a kind of a gospel in and of itself, which is kind of shows you how far away we are from that earlier depiction of religion and what role it could play in helping to uphold the mores of the people. So more to say on that as we move forward into Tocqueville. What's what's the assignment for next week, Dave? Beginning of the last chapter of volume one, chapter 10, titled Some Considerations on the Present State and Probable Future of the Three Races that Inhabit the Territory of the United States. So if you're following along in the Mansfield translation, that discussion begins on page 302 and it runs through 348. That's 46 pages. So I know that's more than I've ever assigned. But I think that when you read through the selection and you apply it to what we've seen over the last year, 50 years with regard uh, to race relations and racial justice uh, and all of these conversations that are very much at the top of people's minds, it's a worthwhile uh, read of 46 pages. So longer reading for next week as we begin to close out our discussion of volume one. All right, very good. We'll get on it, Professor Corbin. So let's turn our attention now to the grade book and in some ways building upon our conversation just the last few minutes. It's been a bad week for big state governors. So Andrew Cuomo has been heavily criticized in recent days, again, for his policy last month with regard to requiring nursing homes to admit patients who had tested positive for COVID-19. Meanwhile, Gavin Newsom in California has a recall effort well underway, has now reached the threshold of the number of signatures necessary to get it on the ballot. And then last but not least, Texas Governor Greg Abbott obviously has been taking a lot of criticism over the preparation for and the handling of the the current crisis in Texas. And so all three of these, actually, their terms are up in 2022, would be on the ballot in 2022, assuming Newsom makes it that far. So what we're going to grade, Dave, is, is the prospects of each of these men being governor of their state in January of 2023. All, all three seem inclined to continue if the voters will have them. Let's start with Andrew Cuomo, who'd be seeking a, a fourth term at that point were he to run again in 2022. I would give Cuomo's chances, this is hard. I would I'd give him about a C minus chance. I, I actually think that his situation's a little more dire because there are some Republicans, I think, who are well positioned or better positioned to take him on if he decides to run in 2022 uh, than, say, in California. Uh, there are some, I, I think, some really bright lights in the Republican Party in New York that if they put a good campaign together, kind of like following kind of a Pataki type uh, run, Cuomo could be knocked off, especially if this doesn't make its way out of the news. 
Yeah, he's he's taking a lot of heat, not just from Republicans, but there's a lot of Democrats. You know, there's always been division between the progressive side and the more pragmatic side of the Democratic Party. And Cuomo's tried to kind of straddle that without being overly identified with the progressive wing, uh, as I say, Bill de Blasio would be. So, yeah, I think he's I think he's got some real danger here. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that aspect of it, though. But I think that what could or the, the what force could knock Cuomo off as a as a Democratic insurgent. I don't think that uh, Andrew Yang, if he won the mayoral race in New York City, would have enough time in that office to then jump right to the governor's office. But there'd probably be some if he won a, a pretty good election this year who would be asking him to do as much. Um, I know for your part, uh, working for AOC, uh, governor of New York campaign could be you know somewhere in the, your near future in the next 12 to 18 months. So there, but there are you know, very ambitious uh, Democrats in the state of New York uh, who who might be willing uh, to take him on, and he may be so damaged uh, with within the Democratic Party that that uh, that could be a reality. That's like really I didn't think about that angle, but that that could very well happen. Yeah, I like your C minus on him. So let's move on to to Newsom. Uh, you know the situation there certainly better than I, being out there in California. What what do you make of his his chances of survival? Well, my wife, Kate's become a big like AM news listener. Oh, I don't know what happened over the last two or three months. I, I know she wanted our kids back in school, and now she drives them most of the time an hour away. So she's listening to AM news. And, and so every time I get in the car with her, it's on. And if you'd listen to AM news, you'd think that Governor Newsom has no chance whatsoever to be uh, uh, reelected uh, and that he could very well be knocked off uh, with the recall effort. I'm going to say that that's that his likelihood of being reelected is probably more like a B minus. I think that if he can kind of overcome these last couple of storms, and he's brought a lot onto himself, I think that he could he could he could make it through. And I go back to something I said earlier. I'm not convinced that um, that the Republican candidates running uh, can can mount a, an effective statewide race. Maybe some people are saying Kevin Falconer, the former mayor of San Diego, but I, I, I'd make Greg, excuse me, I'd make um, Gavin Newsom's um, prospects a little better. Yeah, I agree with that. I might even go a little bit higher. I, I'd probably give him a B. I think, I think he's got, uh, you know, if, if, if this article is right, that, that COVID is beginning to wane, then that's going to really open up some options for him because, you know, a lot of the pressure is coming from dissatisfied parents whose kids aren't in school and and just sort of the overreaction to COVID as they perceive it. And then, of course, his hypocrisy, we know about like the dinner and things. This kind of, so the disconnect between what he's saying and what he's doing. And if, if you start to get in a post-COVID political context where it's not the only issue or the top state level issue, then maybe by by November, He's got some breathing room and and the energy behind this begins to fizzle. Well, given I was at that restaurant and my plate of duck was about $750, it's hard <laughs> for me to criticize him to too great a degree. But no, just I thought I saw you in the background of that picture. I, I was. I'm in the table to the left. Confirmed uh, now. Yeah, exactly. Okay. A, a bourbon and ginger ale and then this big duck on my plate. Right, so. right. Okay, good, good. So then now your adopted state, Greg Abbott, Texas, is he uh, in any trouble in 2022? No, no, not at all. I, I think that uh, 
I, I, well, what I've heard is that um, Beto is is planning on running against him. He say, okay, well, he, he did very well against uh, Ted Cruz a couple of years back in the Senate race. I just don't, I don't see Texas uh, turning um, that quickly. And I, I put his odds probably at about an A minus. Yeah, I agree with that. I think, and I think, you know, Beto's proven he's just the kind of person that can attract some energy but he's not a disciplined campaigner. He's not very good at sticking to message. He doesn't seem like uh, the nuts and bolts part of the campaign. He's, he's mastered well enough. This is probably something that, that Abbott can survive. And he'll certainly, I'm sure, take some steps to prepare Texas for the next cold snap coming out of all this. But I think the fundamentals are still there strong for his reelection. All right. Well, we wrap up the show each week with the Tocqueville's crystal ball. Last week, you recall, we took a break from sports to guess how many senators would vote to convict former President Trump. Uh, We both said over 55 and a half. So we both got it right. Uh, But you got it exactly right, Dave. You said 57. I said start calling this David Corbin's crystal ball. Like from after January 1st, it's been almost like a crystal ball. It's it's been amazing. Now, you didn't quite get the 57th correct you know you said you said lamar and i i can understand why you remember the old days of seeing him tromping around new hampshire back when we were up there in those plaid shirts and still have still have mine yeah, the red and black plaid that exclamation point at the end of every sign so i i understand that it was richard burr as it turned out interesting north carolina retiring senator richard burr so anyway you're seven and three on the year uh i'm four and six this week, we're going to go back to sports, and it's rather than uh, you know, a one-week, one-off kind of prediction, we're going to make a little longer-term call here. So it's been a crazy offseason for the NFL already. We've already had two major quarterback trades, and there's lots of rumblings about more. So now we can't do like three hours of talk radio sports on this, Dave, but what I'm going to do is, is give you some quarterbacks, and I want you to tell me, are they traded between now and the NFL draft end of April. And if you want to speculate quickly on where they might be traded to, I'll, I'll let you do that too. And then one last point along with this, is any of these the starting quarterback for the Patriots in the fall of 2021? You ready for this? I'm ready. Okay. Number one, Deshaun Watson. Traded or not? Traded. Yes. And traded to the Dolphins. I, I agree with you 100% on that. I think he is going to go to the Dolphins. Second, Russell Wilson. Some rumblings of dissatisfaction up there in the Pacific Northwest. Could you imagine Russell Wilson going somewhere else? Yes, to the Raiders. Okay, going to Las Vegas, huh? Close to LA. I, I, I could see it. Yeah, yeah, I, I could imagine it. I, you know, when, when I, I think about, some of these trades and, and just the way that it affects the cap situations of these teams, it seems hard to imagine that they're all going to happen, you know, that, that every team's going to have the cap space to burn. And so I think that's one's not going to happen. I, I think, I think Russell Wilson stays with Seattle. I think they, they work it out. Third, Sam Darnold. Yes. Once again, to the 49ers. To the 49ers. Okay. Okay. Yeah. It'd be a good place for a fresh start there. Some good offensive minds. I think he will be traded. I'm going to say that the Saints. So now you just had Russell Wilson going to Las Vegas. Our next quarterback is Derek Carr. Surely he's got to be moving too, Dave. He's he's going up to play for the Seahawks. 
Wow. Okay. That'll be interesting. All right. Seahawks take on Derek Carr. I, again, I don't, I don't think either of those trades is going to happen. That, that would, I mean, that makes sense. If, if Wilson goes to Las Vegas and there's definitely some rumors about that, then Carr is probably going the other way. I think at the end of the day, neither of them moves. Tua. Tua's going back to the Texans. So, yes. Yeah, I agree with that. I think he's, he's part of the deal. Certainly uh, some first round draft picks as well. Maybe another player involved. We'll see just how much the Texans are able to extract from the Dolphins. Jimmy Garoppolo. Now you, you told me that uh, Darnold was going to the 49ers. So Garoppolo is moving to? To the Jets. So I haven't said no yet. So yes. <laughs> Yeah. This is going to be a fun offseason. We got, we got two months of things to talk about here. Three, three major trades. That's right. So. Yeah. And, and it's quarterback swaps in each of them, which is pretty wild stuff to think about. Okay. Well, Garoppolo, Garoppolo back to the Jets. I think Garoppolo goes to the Patriots. I'm, I'm thinking there's going to be some kind of poetic conclusion to all that. I mean, all the heat that Belichick took when he traded Garoppolo for just a second round pick. Three more for you. Teddy Bridgewater, uh, Carolina. Yeah, I don't. I don't think so. I, I don't think he goes anywhere. Uh, if he was going to go anywhere, I, I would say New Orleans. He had a couple good years as a backup in New Orleans. Yeah, true. Now ah, you know what I'll say: New Orleans. Okay, well, got <laughs> to gotta find a home. Got to keep the streak going here. So, okay. Bridgewater to the Saints. Uh, I, I think Bridgewater stays. His contract isn't ideal. I don't. I don't think anyone's going to want to pay him twenty million to be a backup. So. Uh, and to make him a starter elsewhere, I think is questionable. So I think he stays. Uh, Drew Locke, Drew Locke, definitely a team-friendly deal, but unfortunately not a great quarterback over there in Denver. Drew who? I'm oh, just kidding. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I don't. I don't see many people, you know, trading him. You know, he may be released, or I, I just, yeah, I, I don't see any interest in, in a Drew Locke. Okay. Yeah. I think he's, he's the kind of guy that might go the other way if somebody were coming in, but if, if we're not projecting anyone going to the Broncos, I don't think they're going to find anyone who's eager to trade for him. Lastly, and this, I guess, connects to uh, Las Vegas as well. How about Marcus Mariota? Will he be on the move as well? I think so. I just don't know. Uh, I don't think it would be a trade. They, I think they probably even release him. I don't know what kind of dead cap there would be there, but um Someone would pick him up. What team is left that I haven't traded the quarterback <laughs> for? Uh, we'll go Patriots for Mariota. There we go. Yeah, I, I could imagine him there. I Since I put Garoppolo on the Patriots, I'm going to have him on the move also. I'm going to say the Bears. Uh, they're definitely on the market for a new quarterback, I think. It's like looking for me, it's, it's like this um, mock draft that there are like 37 trades in the first round. Right. And you know, for some reason, the Patriots get the number one pick in Trevor Lawrence. <laughs> those, those dream scenarios you had when you were you know 10 years old and like, oh, well, they just trade a backup lineman. And, and yeah, the Jaguars would give up Lawrence for him. So, but anyway, I've got to, I've got to figure this out. I'm going to have to somehow figure out what I said here to see if it all comes true. But we won't yeah. even know until the end of April, early May, correct? That's right. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And as always, we encourage you to review the show and subscribe at your favorite podcast platform. Also, don't forget, you can find us on Instagram at Democracy in America Today and contact us by email, democracyinamericatoday at gmail.com. We look forward to talking to you again next week. 